everything's always more gradual than people expect it to be. But it could be the kind of situation when we're, you know, 70 or 80 years old, we look back and we're like, everything's way different. <laughs> this is not like right. the America that I recognized right. when we were younger. Potentially in the same way that some Visigoth in like, <laughs> right. you know, 600 right. AD was like, wait a second, Rome's not really around anymore, like in the way that it was. Hello, fellow geeks. Welcome to the Story Geeks podcast, and thank you for joining us. You are part of a small but influential group of people we call Story Geeks. Fans of science fiction, fantasy, and comic books who love to dig deeper into geek stories to see how they impact us and the culture around us. These aren't just stories that help us escape. These stories shape our world. How? That's what we're discussing today. Don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future Story Geeks content. And as always, we want to hear from you. So follow us on Facebook or Twitter and send us your thoughts and opinions by commenting or emailing. If you like this podcast, be sure to share it with a geek friend. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Shear, and this podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. For more information about the Story Geeks podcast and other Reclamation Society projects, visit www.reclamationsociety.org. Now, let's dive into this week's episode. Well, this is the first Story Geeks podcast of its kind, because I actually haven't done a creator interview yet, but creator interviews are part of what we want to do. And today I have with me uh, Malachi Ward. Now, it's kind of cool because I've known Malachi for, what, at least 10 years, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And Malachi and I are not, Malachi and I are not like super close friends, but we've all, we kept in touch that entire time. And uh, I met him because he was working for the same organization I was working for, and I was sort of more in a marketing role. He was sort of more in an art role. And then he went on to do, basically, jump into the comics world and, and jump into the art world um, as well, full time. So... That's super exciting. Um, he also has uh, a fairly recent book that came out in 2016 called Ancestor, and he's going to tell us about the projects that he's um, working on and also the stuff that he's released. Uh, he has a writing partner um, named Matt Sheehan. Um, am I pronouncing that right? Sheehan? Yeah, yeah. Sheehan. Yeah. So Malachi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good. It's great to have you. Um, so let's just start out. Let's just start out with uh, just this question. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about the projects um, that you've, you know, released into the marketplace already. Yeah. So, Ancestor is kind of the main book that I've done. It was originally serialized in a magazine called Island, mm. uh, and it was collected by Image Comics and published last year. Uh, and like you said, I, I collaborated on that with Matt Sheehan and. We did a book before that called Expansion that we just self-published. Mm. Uh, in October of this year, that's going to be collected finally. So that'll be out soon. Oh, cool. Um, and that's going to be out from Ad House Books, which is a publisher we like a lot. Nice. Uh, other than that, I did um, a book with a publisher called Alternative Comics called From Now On, hmm. that collected a bunch of the short stories that I did for anthologies or just as like self-published zines and things like that. Awesome. Um, and they're all kind of sci-fi, fantasy. Uh, oftentimes they can get kind of surreal or weird or something like that. Stories like that that, uh, I don't know, have 
a range of influences i guess from like classic like sci-fi like jack vance kind of stuff to Mm. you know 2001 or more kind of heady uh weird science fiction um but yeah that's that's what we're doing right now matt and i sent in the files the final files for expansion (laughs) recently so i'm just kind of like taking a breather that's awesome that's awesome um but yeah then and then i'm working on my next book right now which will come out hopefully next year are you partnering with matt on that one too that's going to be a solo one Uh, um which is from now on is all solo work got it uh so it'll be more in that vein but a, a longer story and then matt right now is drawing a story that our friend simon roy is writing uh called utopia planitia which is like mm. about a martian colony um and that will probably start coming out next year as a mini series cool. first so serialized to single issues super cool that'd be great yeah Awesome. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the influences you mentioned a little bit more. Um, not a question that I sent you, but I think it's a really fascinating one. But before we, do, before we go there, um, what is it like? Like, So the Reclamation Society and the Story Geeks podcast and all the other stuff that the Story Geeks comes out with and is going to come out with um, was founded by Nathan and I. And so we partner with... Uh, partnered together on a lot of the stories he's sort of more like the artist for us and i'm more the writer but how does the collaboration work for you and matt how is that structured how do you guys work together what does that look like it's evolved a lot Mm. as we've worked together um when we started expansion it was it was more like i'm the story guy and matt's the art guy Mm. even though i was doing like the inking yeah um and then it got it got more integrated where Matt was co-writing the, the stuff with me. Um, and then some of the art stuff, I feel like, like initially Matt would pencil very loosely and we would do layouts together. Mm. Like Ancestor is, is that okay. way. Um, but in some of the more recent stuff that we've been doing, it's kind of becoming more like, in some ways, more like a traditional like Marvel style mm. thing where like his pencils have kind of become more tight and I'm now kind of just doing the like traditional like standard kind of inking got it just straight inking um with some variation but we still usually thumbnail stuff together and the writing process is the product of like or like this year while Matt's drawing the mm-hmm. Simon story and I'm drawing my own story um we're writing two very different stories together. Oh, cool. But that writing process at the stage that it's in now is still a lot of just like conversations. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and then it it slowly kind of congeals into thumbnails for us. We don't usually, unless there's like a monologue of some kind or something where the dialogue really has to be locked down or is the guiding force in the sequence. Yeah. Um then usually we prefer to do the writing in the in a visual way from the beginning. Oh, okay. Um, I think the more integrated those things are in comics, yeah. generally the more successful it is. Right. Um, you find the the best solutions to a problem when you're thinking about the end product. Yeah, that's which cool. is more difficult if you're just typing it out. You know? Right. 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 Um, yeah. So that's. That's basically our process. Yeah, like I said, it's always a little bit different. Like there's <laughs> right. not necessarily a 
a hard and fast kind of yeah. rule to how we do it. Now, you guys have been collaborating since what year? Uh, 2010 is when we started okay. expansion. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think Nathan and I have been collaborating since about 2005, I want to say. 2005, right. 2006. Um, I've known him since 2003. And I think when you collaborate with somebody, and like you, you're kind of mentioning this too, like the stories become more of a shared uh, role. In other words, like it's not just me writing things down on a page and then giving it to him to do the art with, right? It becomes like a thing like, well, what, how should this work? What, what should these characters' motivations be? And then it doesn't really... I still am the one that puts most of the words in the page. Okay. But I don't really do that much without him having a significant input into what's coming next and why. Or if I put something out there, it's very much pen on napkin almost. And then he's responding going, yeah, that doesn't work. Let's like toss this out. Let's toss this out. Right. So um, it is interesting to collaborate, but it's also really fun to collaborate too. I can't imagine not collaborating. Um, right. Yeah. I, it sounds like you have a similar in the writing stages as Matt and I do where um, in, in some ways after the kind of the initial conversations about the, the skeleton of the story, um, it's almost like being each other's editors a little bit. Right. Um, where maybe I'll do a pass on something and be like, this is not it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he'll do a pass and then I'll do another pass. You know, like it'll just get tossed back and forth. Yeah. Um, but it is really fun. And it is, I think I write a lot faster or we write a lot faster together than I write on my own. Mm. Just because because of that, like externalizing ideas is yeah. It's a lot easier to get rid of bad ideas that way. Right. I know I've definitely held on to bad ideas in my own solo work just because there was some kernel of it that I liked. Right. And there wasn't someone to frown at me when I told them, (laughs) you know, like, or to just be like, "Mm, all right. Yeah, right. Exactly. um, And then then it's also so much easier to, yeah, work through any... Where you where you know something isn't quite like locked in yet, and you can kind of go through your options a lot faster. Right. You know? right. Yeah, I think it, it helps me too because like uh, Nathan's very 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 logical in his approach, right? So uh, and stories oftentimes, um, if if they are illogical, the reader is instantly taken out of it, right? It's like right. that motivation makes zero sense given that we already know this about the character or something. So a lot of times that's really helpful for me is when Nathan checks the motivations of the characters and says, like, that that logic won't play out that way. Right. <laughs> right? Um, which is always a really, really good thing. But I think I also have a tendency to... Um, I'm sort of a... I want to be doing something, not just thinking about it. I want to think about it as I do it. I'm like, uh-huh. kind of all at one time type of a deal. And so it's helpful for me to just do it and then have him react to it and then we talk about it. I kind of right. like doing it that way. But. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a th- an issue with all creative stuff, mm. right? Is eventually you have... It's so much easier to react to something yeah. than it is to just kind of like soak things up and kind of the nether world of the like proto (laughs) thing existing you know it's why it's easy for us to like watch a movie and be like oh well if they only did this and this and this then like (laughs) it would be really good um instead of like us 
coming up with this movie from scratch or whatever. Yeah, um, that's true. And then, I mean, I think Matt and I kind of fill out each other's strengths and weaknesses in a oh, similar way, too, where yeah. uh, I tend to think of things more in just like a pure like story structure ah, way. Okay. Or I lean heavier that way, whereas Matt leans heavier kind of on the thematic and philosophical consequences of what the events uh, are, you know, what events are happening. Yeah. Um, but it does, it makes it so that we don't usually go in thinking like, okay, we want to do something about this theme. Yeah, you know? right, right, right. Um, yeah, it is nice to have someone that can kind of yeah fill out the other role. Yeah. And the logic thing is like a huge deal. That's one of the reasons, yeah. like, say... <laughs> A movie like Alien is such a like go-to for people as like here's how you write like a suspense story because it does that like every event flows from the event preceding it in such a natural way that right it's very like chasing after that like satisfaction of just like oh, this all just makes sense yeah. <laughs> right and is uh, unfortunately got like a kind of a rare thing in stories it is um, yeah uh yeah so that's huge to be able to have someone that can <laughs> totally you, yeah you need to bounce ideas off somebody which is why which is why even as a part of the reclamation society as we develop new and and more stories we're actually bringing we're actually creating a writing group um kind of in the pixar model with the with okay. pixar has like a brain trust where basically um, there's a writer, and that writer is, or, or a producer, or a director, who's responsible for the story, but they are also responsible to show that story or reveal that story to the brain trust for feedback. They can do whatever they want with the feedback, right? but they're responsible to do that. So I actually, coincidentally, had just kind of been recently fantasizing about some comics version of that. I wasn't oh. thinking of it in those terms, yeah. but, uh, but that's actually the, like... The perfect way to articulate that mm. where it's just I kept thinking like there are these there are a lot of good writers in comics but there's not enough good material in the yeah. mainstream right. context of right. comics that's being produced I think yep. um, and I mean say at Image there's not necessarily like an editorial presence which right. there's a lot of positives to that right. Right. right but I was like I said kind of fantasizing about like if there was almost like a school or more appropriately a brain trust of people whose opinions you could take or leave yeah but who would inevitably improve upon your idea <laughs> it just seems like such a fantastic model and for those of you listening if you want to read about that model in more detail you can actually go um get the book creativity incorporated which is really more about a leadership book but it shows how leadership and the way that pixar formulated their creative process was meant to be highly collaborative to turn out the best stories while still not taking it away or stealing the the writer or the director of his or her vision mm -hmm. uh, but that, for them being able to create the best thing possible right. kind of environment with that like that. and I would love to see someone take a stab at like a DC or Marvel shared universe with with a writer's room, <laughs> like with more of a like a TV or a, a Pixar kind of approach, where because it, all the DC and Marvel stuff is so expansive, like there's yeah. so many you know titles that they're <laughs> publishing, I know. 
Um, but if maybe that was trimmed down a little bit, <laughs> right. uh, it would be great to to have like a each person be able to utilize their voice, but for it all to kind of mesh together in a in a much yeah clearer way. I do think that Pixar model is fantastic, and in that and that model turned out a lot of fantastic stories. Um, it was, right. It's not you until get, recently that we've seen kind of Pixar do some stories that maybe weren't fantastic. Right. Um, yeah, you get like 10 straight years of like yeah. pretty much flawless record. <laughs> I yeah. know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. So let's go back to this um, this concept of what influences you. And, and I want to hear about some of your influences, but then I also want to ask the question about how do you how do you and Matt really, but but you yourself, how do you come up with ideas and how do those ideas eventually make it onto a page? But let's start with where your influences come from. Uh, influences so there's kind of a there's kind of a combination with the influences where there's there's this like bed of the stuff that really hit me when I was younger. Um, and in the end probably has like the most profound influence over what I'm doing. Yeah. It's not something that would necessarily like be recognizable, um, right. but thing things like that. It's like Calvin and Hobbes and nice. Star Trek and like Back to the Future uh, and Ray Bradbury novels um, and Roald Dahl novels. Mm. Like those are all the things. Like that's where I kind of whatever my sense of what a story should be is probably developed directly from those things interesting um and then i think there's a much more like immediate sense of influence where you're seeing things that are being made around you and you're kind of using it as like you're in competition with that or you see something that they did that has like a kernel of something that you think is a good idea but then you think they blew it everywhere else so you're like <laughs> right. oh okay well like maybe we do it this way we could try this one out um, yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot of things like that where i'm you know, you try to steal in an appropriate way <laughs> where yeah. you, there, there's some idea that you see that you like that you make your own um, yeah. in a responsible way, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so, like, for Ancestor, the it came from some reading that Matt and I were doing. One of the starting points was me reading... Um, Going Clear, the mm. book about Scientology. Oh, interesting. Um, and there's... So the antagonist in in um, Ancestor is the product of me being really fascinated by these very uh, charismatic uh, people that have kind of learned to uh, take advantage of other people and they're mm. usually really narcissistic and they, mm. they, they have all, this whole set of characteristics that's really fascinating to me and one of the things that's fun to write about those or why I was drawn to that type of a character is that it's also usually even though they don't realize it all of their motivations are really like on their sleeve a lot of the time uh -huh. so like there's a sequence in Ancestor where the antagonist is kind of running this program to it's, it's basically like listing these affirmations, trying to make him feel better about himself. Right, right, right. And that's like directly related an to... An amazing scene, by the way. That's an awesome yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> that's like directly related to something from Going Clear, where L. Ron mm -hmm. Hubbard had this list of 
just insane affirmations that he would either either he like did like a tape recording of it or something like that but it's everything from it's everything from him telling himself that all the stories he says are true uh to the the army not being after him anymore to him being able to impregnate women <laughs> wow. to hit to there not being snakes underneath his bed like it's this really really potent yeah. and incredible thing to read where you're just getting like an adrenaline shot of this guy's darkest like deepest fears wow um and you can and then everything that he does is extrapolated from that right um so we wanted to do something like that <laughs> in the book because it was That's such cool. a like powerful experience to read. Yeah, um, yeah. And people that have that level of narcissism that they're trying to achieve something on the scale that they are trying to achieve it at um, usually have something really deeply rooted that's yeah. driving them. Uh, so that was something that we definitely knew we wanted to incorporate. And then another thing was... There's this uh, reading about this. Uh, it's a the Munster Rebellion in like the 1500s. Oh, no. It's a group of Anabaptists that took over Munster, and uh, and it's uh, it's almost like this proto cult. Oh, uh, because it starts as like Anabaptists who were like a kind of extreme product of the Reformation. Yeah, um, and it gets more and more extreme and then you start to see there's there's kind of this like very cult-like leader at the mm, front of it yep jan matthias who one of the characters in the book matheson is named after Turn away. um and he he uh basically takes this town hostage no and they all kind of have to con- i mean they occupy the town and right. kind of push out anybody that's not on board um and some like classic kind of cult stuff happens where he like institutes polygamy and like oh, free love and all, all yeah, of these things yeah. that you associate with more contemporary uh, cult groups. Right. So that was kind of what initially drew it, me to it. But then these characters from history were so compelling that we knew we wanted to kind of in integrate them in together and the other half of that second chapter of ancestor where things go really south is based on something that he did where basically he gathered everyone into a church and he was fully like talking to god where and he was arguing with god over who should be killed and not killed like who really believed yeah so and then like reading about that i was just like this is the most suspenseful (laughs) thing like i've ever read in history (laughs) like we have to try and you know see if this idea can kind of fit into like a contemporary story in some way yeah um so those were kind of the first two seeds for ancestor that's cool that's super cool I, I sometimes I'll be surprised by my own influences too. Like I'll be I'll be writing through something and then realize it was it was very apparent. So Malachi did the cover art for a story that we're releasing. We were supposed to release it this summer, and then we we've gone through these major story changes just based on some <laughs> things that I wanted to uh, improve. But Malachi did the cover art for the book. The cover art's amazing. Um, and this, and it kind of had a lot of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark feel to it at first, 
And then I was reading through um, the Dark Tower series, and I'd never read the Dark Tower series. And I thought, oh, you know what's one of the most compelling things about this series is how we get the internal dialogue. Because this had actually started out as a script, so there was no internal dialogue. We never heard what the lead character was thinking. Um, But then after I read The Dark Tower, I went, this is so much more compelling because we know what the lead character is thinking. And that was, because it's kind of set in the same sort of world, it's like a Western sci-fi fantasy um, steampunky kind of deal. Because of that, it was like, oh, I should add some of those elements. Like, so that became an influence, even though the, the original story, I had never read The Dark Tower before the original story. We had kind of a similar thing with Ancestor where we, we knew what the last chapter was going to be, mm. basically. Yeah. Um, and the way we wrote, we wrote Ancestor chapter by chapter. I uh, mean, we had like the outline of, of what each chapter was going to be. Sure. But, um, but the outline to the last chapter, there were, there were fewer beats. We knew mm. just kind of how expansive we wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, and, and like three of the major kind of plot points. Um, and then before we got to that, I read... This comic came out here in English called Ama um, that uh, didn't necessarily have a similar ending, but mm. it the scope of it kind of ballooned out in sort of a similar yeah. way um, and was executed really well. The, mm. the guy who did the Ama is called Frederick Peters, and mm. he's one of the best kind of just in terms of the raw like storytelling art of like laying out a page yeah um so definitely after seeing that we're like we have to really like up the game on on this last section and like if it's going to be what it is like if it's going to take place in the time that we want it to take place i'm trying to talk around what it is which is a little weird Um, then we need to fully embrace that and not be scared to maybe make it a little difficult on the first read through yeah um but I think pretty rewarding on multiple reads where because it is sort of like this isolated story, but we wanted to really push all the visuals and all the concepts kind of to the natural spot. We wanted mm. it to feel totally alien. And so that's kind of yeah a tricky thing to do. And I mean we knew that it, that was gonna that was gonna be the jumping off point for a lot of people <laughs> in the story where they were yeah. gonna be able to follow it. But that's fine i mean that was kind of what we were expecting anyway yeah uh but yeah it definitely near the end of the process uh became influenced by (laughs) we're still (laughs) collecting influences yeah yeah exactly which is kind of fun to do throughout it can really mess with your storytelling obviously because now you're going like oh any i mean just like anything right like you get to the end of writing your story and then you go oh this this is actually a really cool thing that i'd like to include in the ending but you can't just include it you have to go back and weave that in throughout all the rest of it right (laughs) yeah one thing that happened with ancestors we were sending out the chapters as we finished them to people because mm-hmm. we didn't have editors and we wanted we we wanted it to be because it is kind of a weird story to uh to really ensure that it was reading the way that we intended it to be right. read right that all of the turns were hitting appropriately um and one thing that it didn't necessarily change a lot, but one thing that we didn't quite anticipate is that there's 
that character I mentioned before, Matheson, who's kind of in the group of friends is the connection between these group of friends to the antagonist. Uh, we didn't think that people were going to love that character or anything or like really uh, like him. But one thing that really came through from the feedback was like, we hate this guy <laughs> because of what he does. Yeah. Uh, and so one thing that we built into the end that wasn't necessarily there is that he uh, gets what's coming to him, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and he, he, initially, he wasn't really a part of the end of the story at all. Oh, interesting. Um, so we realized, yeah, that, that we couldn't just let him kind of drift <laughs> away in the story. Right, right, right. Um, so that part, that, like getting really detailed feedback from people was helpful in that pretty regard. yeah essential yeah, anytime you can get feedback from especially your core audience like the people who are gonna like what you're doing because you know you can get feedback from people who are not within your core audience in fact i usually when i'll ask if some if people want to read what, what we're doing so that we can get feedback like that usually I'll, I'll ask them like can you tell me some of those other stories that you like because there are cer certain people who I go, oh, you like period piece romance? Then you're probably not going to like this story at all. Right. Which doesn't mean your feedback is invaluable, is not valuable. I'm sure that it is valuable, but it may not be real. It may not be as valuable related to the type of story we're trying to tell. Because the type of story we're trying to tell, if it has this audience, might not perceive that that needs to be a thing that happens the way you perceive that needs to be a thing that right. needs to happen. Yeah, uh, one of the key things that we realized really quickly with the feedback was to differentiate between the specifics of what the person was saying needed to change mm. and figuring out what that root problem was oh, that they were great. reacting to. Yep. Because a lot of times they'll say like, I don't like that this happened, but it's hard to talk about in yeah, generalities. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason that they don't like that thing that happened is because this part of the book wasn't clear or right. because this thing, you know, didn't have the emotional impact that it was supposed to have. Right. So they're upset about this. Like, okay, for instance, in Ancestor, um, one of our most helpful editors, basically, yeah, you know, yeah, friends yeah. that was, right. that was giving us feedback was, uh, pretty legitimately like upset by, the way that two characters in the third chapter kind of just like gave in. Oh, and, sure. Or at least okay. that's how he saw it. They're yep. like, oh, they just like give up basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we we realized that we didn't make it clear enough. And I think this is actually still kind of a flaw, even though we made edits to yeah. try and fix this, uh, that we didn't make it clear enough that the kind of the people in this party that they go to are like hardcore followers of the antagonist. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so he was throughout kind of frustrated by the, the reactions that people were Got it. not having to right. this antagonist. So that's kind of an example of that. Yeah, that's cool. That's super cool. That's a, that's a, that's a really good example. Star Wars fans, we are giving away two very special Star Wars prizes to Reclamation Society email subscribers. If you subscribe to the Reclamation Society's email updates, you are entered to win the Art of Rogue One. But thanks to a special donation from Daryl Smith, who is also one of the other hosts of the Story Geeks podcast, we have a second prize, a never-before-watched copy of The Phantom Menace on VHS. 
That means we have two super cool collector's items, and all you have to do is subscribe to our email updates, which by the way, you should do anyways. So, go visit www.reclamationsociety.org and you can enter to win there. The link is in the show notes, so go subscribe now. I'm gonna ask you a really in-depth question. The next two questions are super in-depth. And this just gets into some of what the Story Geeks is all about, because one of the things that we do when we talk about podcasts is we dive really deep into, you know, how do these stories help us understand, interpret the world, how do they impact us? How do they impact culture? Um, and that really relates back to this idea that storytellers are conveying ideas through their stories. And this all comes from, um, by the way, uh, Lisa Cron has a book called Wired for Story. And she talks about how the human brain is um, wired to understand the world through stories. It understands and interprets the world through stories, which is why, by the way, that data very rarely matters in changing someone's opinion. <laughs> right, Usually right. it's a story that changes someone's opinion, not, not just pure data. Um, so in order for that to effectively happen, a writer has to set out to explore a specific topic or test a belief that they have. So my question to you, Malachi, is what are some of the common themes in your stories and what beliefs or ideas are you testing in those stories? I think in the broadest sense, I'm uh, always trying to figure and this is going to be really the broadest sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are like the individual's place in society and history like how we can fit into that and then a person's place in kind of the larger scheme of nature basically got it um that come i mean i think that's something that science fiction and fantasy are specifically built to explore in a way that other right. genres can't do. In the end, that to me is the strength of science fiction and fantasy. Because right. there are plenty of things where like, oh, this is like a military story. Like, technically there's no reason, like, <laughs> reason why this couldn't be set in the present day or something right, like that. Right, right, right. Uh, but I think those broader questions are something that you can do in, say, 2001 that you can't really do in a in a genre that's not willing to test the boundaries of what it means to be human. Right. Like you have to right. imagine non-humanness right. in a certain way to to help define humanness. Yeah. Um, for ancestors, kind of the first, I guess, I don't want to say mature work, but the first thing where we really thought through the entire process and, mm -hmm. and really kind of created the book that I wanted to create for the most part, yeah, uh, yeah. more so than anything else that we've done so far. Got it. So for in Ancestor, that kind of the opening themes that we were thinking about was definitely uh, ego as it relates to bettering yourself mm. uh, and bettering humanity. Yeah. So like, the antagonist is has this huge ego and he thinks that through technology he can through this technology which is the product of his genius he can fix the world and of course fix himself because he has all these crazy insecurities right um and uh 
I think as we moved through the story, we started to realize that the technology, the theme of technology was also going to be explored not just through his own ego, but through the reader and society's like expectation of mm-hmm. being able to pin responsibility for the welfare of our future on things outside of ourself, mm-hmm. like technology or you know science or religion or history or mm-hmm. anything like that. Mm-hmm. Not to say that uh, that you have to be that there can't be any outside source of help or anything like that. Right, right, right. But that you have to start with yourself and mm-hmm. you have to kind of take responsibility for... You have to do the work to make yourself better and it's, right. it's on you, basically. Uh, even if you're using tools outside of yourself to right. accomplish that. Right, right, um, It's not going to happen on its own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, it, yeah, I think that was basically what we were kind of trying to, to get through in Ancestor. And that's why this is all kind of the product of starting with this idea of, like, guys like Ray Kurzweil or other people that are really into the singularity um, or this idea that we're just on the cusp of technology kind of being able to make us infinitely better. Right. Um, so it's definitely, like, a reaction to that, which... Yeah isn't as in vogue now as it maybe was when we were starting Ancestor. Ah, sure. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think because of the more immediate technological themes, it was easy for people to kind of yeah. tap into it. Well, and, you're, you, and Ancestor doesn't deal with this directly, but it, it, it is, there have been several news stories recently about artificial intelligence and about so there was an argument between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg about what artificial intelligence, if it was good or bad. Because Elon Musk has a very, it's bad, <laughs> sort oh, okay. of. It's bad if not given boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a Isaac Asimov how, view of it, right? right? Whereas I think Mark Zuckerberg's view is kind of like let technology happen. Like it's, it's going to happen eventually, so like let it happen. I, and I didn't. I'm saying that from a non-expert view who like read a couple of Yahoo articles. <laughs> right, um, right. But the other, the other story that came up recently was I had read about um, an artificial intelligence that had developed its own language and then the researchers shut it down because like, what right, is it right. going to do with this? I saw so, that headline. I haven't read, I haven't read that article. Yeah, yet. yeah. I think generally, I, so here's one thing that is kind of an influence on the work too. Um, I mean, uh, people sometimes mean different things when they talk about artificial intelligence. Sure. Um, to me, for both Matt and I, uh, it's odd to us that people sort of presume that there's an inevitable sentience that's going to be the result Mm. of artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think it maybe is the product of people, uh, using a computer as a metaphor to describe the human brain and people have kind of just sort of leaned into that to the extent that they kind of assume that that's, that it's something that can happen. (laughs) (laughs) And that both Matt and I are very skeptical that that's something that's like (laughs) down the road from us is that we're going to create something that is a person, you know? Um, uh, So I don't know. It's always really funny to me when there's 
people want it so bad. They want yeah. it to happen really, really badly. So they always kind of any like the weakest kind of dumb thing that could mean that sort of sounds like a computer is coming alive. People yeah. are like, it's happening now, you know. <laughs> right. um, so that's there are some there are some specific things in in ancestor that were done a certain way because of that. Like at, at one point, there's the choice to the white side. The antagonist kind of presents, oh, we're basically going to load our brains up into a computer, right? And that's going right, to be right, right. the way forward. Uh, I don't. Know. I don't really think that that's possible. <laughs> uh, like, I don't think that the human mind is like this tangible, like, uh, collection of like data points that you can right just put somewhere. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> like, I don't think it's a matter of us being able to just like have the capacity to record information well enough. Right. That's keeping us from right having like a complete description of like what a person is right no matter how many ones and zeros you have you're never going to have a human being from those ones and zeros right basically right right? um that's a perfect segue into this next question because you know if stories do impact our audiences um in the way that they've been shown to then it means our stories have a way of connecting us um a story that you write like ancestor, for example, can make me question a core belief that I hold or can even help me come to terms with a core belief um, that I hold or change a core belief or bolster a core belief or whatever. Um, So I I would love to know a little bit more about you personally and what your core beliefs are right now and how those work their way into your stories. Yeah, I mean, I think... Unfortunately, in a, in in a way, uh, the last couple of years, I haven't had like a set of core beliefs that mm. you could articulate um, mm. to my satisfaction. Okay, and I think part of the reason is I've just I've been soaking up a lot of information in the last few mm. years, and it's still. To be generous to myself, I would say I'm still processing it, but I right. think really a part of it is that I haven't properly like dedicated myself to like <laughs> interrogating right. that, you know, and kind of coming away with um, a kind of definable uh, worldview. Right. Uh, at least, I mean, obviously everyone has a worldview, whether or not they have thought it through sure, very well. Sure, yeah. And I'm just at that stage right now, I think, where I haven't thought it through well enough, where I would right. be, where I would be able to accurately kind of describe what it is. Right. Um, right. And like I said, I don't think that's a good thing. I think if here, here's my worldview, I think people should have worldviews, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and I think that they should be able to uh, reason those out. Mm and describe them mm. with clarity so that they can uh, improve their worldview, so that they can right. improve themselves. Right. Um, because I, I think that's really the only way to, uh, to move forward and to learn is to know what you're reacting against and why you're reacting against it that way mm. and to see, to be able to see the flaws in your thinking, you have to lay it out you right. know you have to say i 
think this. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and right. that's the first step to being right. like, okay, well, this supports that and this doesn't support that. Right. Um, so I still have, you know, all kinds of strong opinions about everything. But <laughs> right. I, I, I need to develop that, like, that kind of almost like a statement of kind of the right, way that I think right, things right, right. are. Um, I will say that uh, I think that an understanding of history is mm -hmm. would make the world a much better place <laughs> if people could if people could really interact with the way that certain ideas have developed, the way that um, people or governments have acted in the past and how they tend to act. Mm. Um, and the messiness and the lack of kind of narrative cohesion yeah. of the supposed arc of history. Right, right, right. Um, the Game of Thronesiness of it. Right. <laughs> that, uh, that I think people would... I think the more you know about what has happened in this world, mm. the harder it is to... Um, fall into a lot of the like intellectual traps that I think people are easy ah. to fall into because you know like you know that we're not on some like steadily rising arc <laughs> of progress and that everything's <laughs> kind of getting better right. or you know that you know that it's uh uh it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven as it is for a camel yeah. to pass through the yeah. eye of an you know you know yeah. that power corrupts but because and I don't mean that because um, people like to use history to justify things all the time. Like, yeah. The number of times that people point to like, oh, Rome fell because of this right. thing that I don't like in America right now. <laughs> right. Um, I think the more that you learn about history, the more you can kind of move past that right. initial like, oh, well, I saw this thing. And then that kind of reminds me of something right. that's happening now. Right. And right, right. realize yeah. the context of what was happening and right. how that you know, isn't really much right, like this right, thing right. that's happening now at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, it's asking people to not be satisfied by kind of a simple version of mm. uh, the world right, <laughs> or the right. like, motivations. It's kind of, there's almost, you know, the, like Occam's razor, the idea that in usually science that uh whatever the simplest solution is to the problem the right is probably one. what it is yeah, yeah. in a way i think that's kind of the reverse for history and mm, for humans interesting it's usually never as simple as it seems like it is <laughs> if there's a story that is totally. usually kind of obscuring the truth of what happened right um so yeah i don't know that's no that's kind of great <laughs> actually there's a there's a podcast out there I, I, I spend a lot of time promoting other people's podcasts. <laughs> there's a podcast out there. Um, well, there's two podcasts that everyone should be listening to, um, particularly one of them. But there's a podcast called Revisionist History. And it's a Malcolm Gladwell oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah. Really, really, really worth your while to listen to because it contextualizes history and talks about how he's actually in a series now where he's saying, like, basically, what does it mean to have power? What does it mean to have power in a, over other people? Um, and, the, and the stories that come out of that are just fascinating and just so deeply disturbing that these things <laughs> right. happened and they didn't happen that long ago. And 
Um, so that, that's one podcast to listen to. The other one is, um, there's two of them. There's, it started out as, as presidential, and it's a Washington Post uh, podcast, and it just covered each of the presidents from, the, oh, okay. from George Washington all the way through. And um, now that they ran out of presidents to cover, they, started, they just released um, Constitutional. Now they're going through how the Constitution started, how it's going to change, and people who were influential to the Constitution. And it's very much all of what you're talking about. Like, it's not right, so right. simple. It's not so... Right. It's, it, we, I think, you know, part of the reason why um, our brains like stories, I believe, is because we actually know that the world is more gray than it is black and white. And so we're saying, like, help me understand it through a story that my right. brain can comprehend. As right, opposed right. to, here's a data point. It's black and white. You can't, data is black and white. It can't tell you, it, it, it can't even tell you necessarily how to behave. It can just tell you something is a fact. Right. But how should I behave about that fact? Well, you probably need a story on top of that data to get you there, right? right. Um, which is why I think for me, it becomes so interesting to, to listen to um, other creators talk about where their stories are coming from. Um, and a lot of times it is, it, uh, for creators, as I think, for, at least it is for me, I won't speak for everybody, but it is this idea that I am trying to understand and comprehend what is true about the world. And therefore, I'm going to play that out in these stories. And obviously, as I tinker with this story, if it's not true, it won't be good. Right. You know, like, <laughs> right. and so it has, a, it has this, this, these elements to it. So... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when people, when they say watch a movie or read a story or something like that, and they have this sense of feeling manipulated by yeah, this story, right. it's because there's there's an untruth in the way that a character is behaving right. or a situation is playing out yep. where you just, you pull away because you know, well, that's not how people are acting. <laughs> right. You're like, you're kind of lying to me right, right now. Right, exactly. You know, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that, you know, there's some kind of, like, early human, like, survival brain part of you that these, the inclination towards understanding the world through stories is kind of like this product of even just, like, pattern recognition, yep, you know? exactly. Just, like, you have to survive by understanding the way that the seasons are affecting yeah yeah <laughs> like um uh the movement of animals and the yep. the you know things like that yeah. um so I, it definitely makes sense that yeah. this sense of story uh is really deeply ingrained yes, yes. in how we process the world i've almost and a lot of it too for me lately is i almost tend to get well, it's not, not almost. I tend to get very frustrated if I believe that a story is intentionally setting out not to explore the topic in more depth, but just to give me its basic message that it feels like it can emotionally impact me toward. Right. So I, I've seen it in both extremes, whether, well, I've seen it in all, all kinds of different extremes. One of the most uh, popular places, because my core belief that's governing what I believe to be true, that I'm constantly testing to see whether or not that, that it is, is usually through the lens of Jesus Christ. What's interesting to me is how Jesus Christ has been bastardized by all of the religions of the world to 
then become something that is actually a human form of religion, not the teachings of Jesus Christ, um, which I think is really fascinating. But the reason I say that is because in my world, as I look at what the Christian marketplace is doing with the films that it's coming out with, those films are meant to make Christians feel better. And if other Christians think that non-Christians are going to watch those films and feel better, generally speaking, they're 100% incorrect in that assumption. Because those stories oftentimes are not true. They're only morality for the sake of morality, not for the sake of having a, a relationship with a spiritual being or spirituality in general. Um, and it's so you, so you can really take creators can really take a belief that they start out with and be disingenuous in saying, I'm going to write a story that just proves out my viewpoint on the topic. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's funny sometimes I'll see things, I'll see, like, read an interview with a director or something like that. Yeah. And he'll say, like, you know, I'm, I wanted to make this movie all about fill in the blank. Right. I think uh, it's been a little while since I've read about or seen this movie, so this might not be super accurate. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I remember reading something about There Will Be Blood, where mm. Paul Thomas Anderson was talking about, like, like, I wanted this to be basically like an anti-capitalist right. movie. Right, right. Um, and I think what's funny is that he's kind of too good of a filmmaker and a storyteller <laughs> right. to just to just tell a story explicitly to try and convince people that capitalism is bad, right? Uh, because he's going to follow the truth of a character or right. of the world, and it can still—I mean, it still is an anti-capitalist movie, right. but it's not in the way that you would expect from someone who's like, all right, I'm going to make Crack My Knuckles yeah, a yeah, yeah. movie to convince people that capitalism is bad. Right. In the same way, one of my favorite movies that came out recently was uh, The Witch. Huh. And it... Um, What's the director on that one? Uh, I'm blanking on his name. It's, it's his first movie, which was yeah. part of the reason why it was really impressive because it was just like out of nowhere. Right, right, right. Um, one of the things that he does is he really takes seriously... Robert Eggers. Right. These uh, kind of foundational to America, these, these Calvinist and Puritanical uh, ideas. Yeah. And he doesn't make fun of them. And he doesn't try to... You just realize that the only time that you've seen those, I, like those characters that believe those things specifically mm-hmm. in a movie, they're always like a caricature, ah. and they're always kind of there to, um, to be the foil or the antagonist, and the, and they're reduced. Their humanity is reduced, basically. Got it. Um, and. Basically, he takes these characters really seriously. He takes their ideas really seriously. And as a result, it's the most profound and powerful condemnation of those ideas Uh, that you could ever have. Because you see the impact that it has on their own lives. Like you see this kid mortally terrified because he doesn't have a chance. Right. (laughs) You know? Right, right. Um and the implication of that kind of being the these sort of this element of being an American, yeah. this isn't anything that he says in the movie. This is right, stuff right, that right. I took from it. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. 
uh, makes it so much more effective in conveying a message because it's true. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a, a reason why a lot of times I have problems with satire. Mm. Uh, I tend to kind of recoil from these like big portrayals of people that you don't like. <laughs> right. <laughs> that right. that seems like really dangerous territory to me to be yep. like, okay, I don't like what this person thinks, so I'm right. kind of going to make fun of them. Yeah. And that that seems tricky to me. Uh, there are yeah. satires that I like a lot, sure. but it's usually the exception. It, it, it just made me, as you were talking about, because just that statement and the statement you made before about history and how history likes to categorize things to, to a degree. You didn't say that, that exactly, but I'm paraphrasing. Um, just as a classic example, the far right calling Obama Hitler and then literally four <laughs> years later, the far left calling right, right. Um, Donald Trump Hitler. And uh, the it's a, it's a perfect example of the point you're making. Which is to say that th- these two individuals, these three individuals, are far more complex than the uh, intentions that we are putting behind them by using this phrase that we all think we know about one individual, the way that that individual has been cat- categorized. And obviously, we can easily say that their villains are villains because of what the outcome of their activities or their behaviors have sure. been. So, but at the same time, you can say... But can I categorize that person as a villain based on the behaviors of someone else that I'm now trying to draw a correlation between? And that's pretty tough to do unless you can actually pinpoint behaviors that are damaging to communities and to, and to people and to intimacy and to these kinds of things, right? Right. So. Yeah. That, like I said, it's always usually pretty lame when people are trying to draw (laughs) really like fiery conclusions between (laughs) something that happened in the past um and a lot of times it is like hitler or like some like very like huge kind of example of like fascism or or like communist collapse or something like that or or something um at that scale uh i mean one thing that i've definitely been thinking about a lot recently because of the general kind of rise and fall of a civilization is that we really seem to be at this point where the, um, the, a lot of the principles that are, were kind of the guiding force Mm -hmm. of what we, what kind of made America work are, are being pushed like the, the normal way of doing things is is right. uh is being expanded and right. changed at right, like right. this really fast rate and that's kind of like rome didn't really have like a um a written constitution or anything like that right uh so rome changed away from what it was because the traditions of how government operated kind of evolved and evolved and evolved. Right. Um, and right now, I, you know, we're seeing a lot of like 
<laughs> or at least I've had the reaction of like, there's not a law against that. Like Trump can do that or like so-and-so can do that, you know, right. like right. you would have thought that like that's something that you couldn't do. Right. And it turns out you can. <laughs> like The only thing that was keeping people from doing that was just the assumption that they were going to like behave well. Right, 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 <laughs> um, right, right. In the same way, you know, and that's not that like Trump is the first to do right. that. It's right, just, right, right. it's, there's been this accumulation over the last like 30 or so years of things like that happening where, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, the idea that you would work for a campaign and get them elected and then turn around and use your connection to them (laughs) to like lobby for like that didn't happen at all. And that's just the way that everybody works now. It just works that way now. Um, so it's things like that where, that makes me feel like we really could be uh, at we we could be witnessing of you know everything's always more gradual than people expect it to be sure um, but it could be the kind of situation when we're you know seventy or eighty years old we look back and we're like everything's way different now. <laughs> this is not like right. the America that I recognized right. when we were younger right. um, in the same way that potentially, potentially in the same way that, you know, some Visigoth in like, <laughs> right. you know, 600 right. AD was like, wait a second. Yeah. Rome's not really around anymore. Like in the way that it was. Exactly. I mean, technically it still is, but, right. but yeah. it doesn't. You know, one of the things I had at one point, one of the things I was reflecting on, it was an idea that I was testing. I never put it into a story. So uh, it was just an idea I was starting to play around with. But it occurred to me that the question should inherently come up, I think, how did a society, how did a culture allow XYZ to happen? How was that allowed to happen, right? So if you took a look at Hitler, right, which is like one of the most villainous people that we can identify within our relatable history, um, you would say, how did the German people allow that to occur? And as you've said earlier about, like, if you really study history, um, and I'm not trying to be some kind of uh, mid-century history buff or something, but, <laughs> but there were conditions in Germany at the time that made a strong leader who was going to theoretically provide economic upheaval and economic success in a place that was very depressed. Um, it made that sort of leader desirable. But then what comes along with that kind of right. leader, right? Maybe a lot of other negative things. And so the, so the, thing, the idea I was trying to start to play with was that as I look at around at our culture and as I look at like a lot of different kinds of beliefs being espoused and the belief systems changing and shifting and things like that, it, the idea I was playing with and this podcast was going to be nothing about this whatsoever, but since we're going there, <laughs> right. I think it's just interesting to me. Um, I'll get your take on it, but it feels to me like a strong civilization. And I I use the term strong not as a positive description of the beliefs or attributes of that civilization, but rather as the ability for it to stay together. Right, a stable. Yes, yes. Um, Versus a weak civilization, meaning a a civilization that is either ripe for takeover or falling apart at its seams effectively. 
seems to be uh, the difference between the two seems to be based on the civilian or the populaces is a better way to say it that civilians populace um agreeing to a set of standard values right right like it's almost like you could you could have a you a, a weak society is one in which kind of people can't figure out what values they all agree on whereas a strong society you know even if those values are incredibly negative like that that common belief that common value system actually allows that entity to stay together more cohesively i don't know what's your response to that based on what you're thinking about i think that's true i mean i think that um of course you can have a, a relatively stable society of people that disagree strongly with each other but yeah there has to be some kind of foundational agreement about I don't know a certain amount of things I'm, right. I'm sure if, if right. you were more well versed in history than I am that you could uh, that you could even iron those da- like r- really pin down right. kind of the shape of and the extent to which you would need this like core shared morality right, right. um yeah, it's a weird thing because it's not really something. That's another thing that I feel like you learn from history is is that there's, it's not necessarily like an answer to like, <laughs> right? Like okay, here's how we'll like turn this around or something. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just that's just how it's gonna go. Yeah. There's not. It seems rare that there's like some incident or some person right. that is able to like really significantly kind of push back against the uh, the inertia of right. events occurring right you know? right um, yeah I mean if someone were to try and say like in an effort to create a situation where people had had these more like say in America because we are so divided right now if someone tried to enforce some kind of like okay we really we all have to believe in this right. at least right that would be really bad <laughs> <laughs> or if they were like okay everybody that thinks everyone that has this view go over there everyone that has this view go over there right. that would be horrible right you know there's right, not right. it's just a weird thing where you can't there's there's yeah the only thing that, the only thing I've wondered about in relationship to America and how divided we are, and again, this is kind of more of a, it is the, it are it is these um, core beliefs that we're kind of wrestling with as writers or creators, and one of the things I wondered about in regards to America specifically is that we have constantly shifted between what the government should be allowed to tell us is morally good and what we should be free to do or make decisions on our own. And so I oftentimes wonder if the the best way to make America more cohesive again um, is to focus on that sense of freedom that the government was intended to create for us. But the problem I've noticed in that in that conversation is that, and this is oftentimes what I'll experience when I'm talking to somebody, is that there are, I feel like there's like basically like two two camps. 
one camp is, um, well, we, we, we want freedom. And the other camp is, well, we want equality. And oftentimes those two things have a very difficult time coexisting. Because if a large enough majority of people decides that freedom for them means saying, you know, uh, we have to have segregation because I don't want African Americans in my establishment, right? Well, all of a sudden, all the rest of us are going to go, what in the world? No way. Equality matters here. You can't just be free to do something like that. And so I just think it's, I, th I think it's one of those things where um, I don't know... I do agree that we're becoming more and more polarized and I hope that we ha have the ability to actually have conversations about it so that we can decide on what some of our right. core beliefs are because I feel like we're, we're in this Twitter world where if you say something in 140 characters that I don't agree with, I just say like the exact opposite in a more angry way in 140 characters. Right. Yeah, I think that I think part of the problem is that there, these values that we do share have kind of been co-opted by mm. like the grabbed up by either side where it's Ooh, like okay now yeah. we're the liberty guys yep and so we're only going to talk about this thing that we want in yep. terms of liberty yep um when maybe that's not the most accurate way to talk about it totally. and so the other side says okay well anybody anytime anybody's talking about liberty it's code for this thing that i hate exactly. so like exactly and then they kind of move themselves into a position where they don't really like liberty anymore yep. because anybody that's talking about that is yeah. not on their side. Yep. Um, and that kind of being exacerbated over the yeah. last few years yep. is like really troublesome. Totally. Um, I think people are often very disingenuous yeah. with the way that they interact with people in, online. They're trying to like, yeah. Win a rhetorical argument. Exactly. Um, yeah, so there's... There, I mean... Okay, when... Uh, I, <laughs> it was only like a couple years ago, but I already forget most of the details. Uh, <laughs> when there was the, the woman that had like a clerical position basically in government and she, she didn't want to uh, license uh, yeah, for, for gay marriage, yep, right? Yep, yep. So there was a a big kind of on the left, a lot of people saying like, she should just do her job. Like, right. This is, they were saying like, this is about her, um, following through with this promise that she made to the, her job and her government right. to fulfill this duty. Right. right. Um, and the, I don't actually follow that many people on the right, so I don't know exactly <laughs> what the the line was. But she was seen as very like heroic. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think the it was really annoying how the left handled that because it was like, why are we pretending like the issue is whether or not she was like doing her job? Like right, that's not right. really what your problem is. Right. If she was refusing to uh like fall in line with segregation for example right. or something else that we can agree is wrong yeah. we wouldn't be like why isn't she doing her job <laughs> like she should just do her job no matter what even if she thinks it's morally wrong right, right. Um, so it annoys me when there are these arguments where people are kind of like trying to I think because of that separation of what the government should be doing and then yes. what is morally right uh, is always like you were saying kind yeah. of an issue in America right. that we have to try and 
navigate yep. in terms of just yep. where the responsibility lies. Mm-hmm. But it just seemed kind of disingenuous to be like, instead of just being like, it's wrong that she doesn't want gay people to get married. Right. Like, that's what the problem is right. on their side. Right. You know, and that the for people on the right, there's the problem is that the government is forcing her to do something they think is wrong, which is right. allow gay people to be married. So it, all of that like dodgy kind of stuff is obnoxious, especially totally. since both sides engage in it all the time. They'll do whatever they can to kind of try and get around the philosophical argument that they're trying to. Yeah. Like core philosophical right. disagreement that they have. Right, 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 right. Maybe because that's all been argued many times before. And so the specific incident is kind of a way to go at it from a different angle. But yeah. I don't know. It just. I don't know either. But but you're right. Like it's the polarization of those things and then the the way that they're argued about and how that breaks down. Again, it's it's it probably also takes. A more interesting story and then makes it an extremist viewpoint on either side to make right. it black and white just so that that side can win an argument right right and it's like one thing I haven't I haven't read too much about say founding fathers yeah but um, whenever I do read something about it um, it's interesting to me because so generally, there's kind of, you know, the right tends to be patriotic in a certain way, sure. and the left tends to be critical of America in a certain way. Right. Um, so you have kind of a more mythologized version of mm-hmm. the founding fathers on sure. the right, which also tends to be, in this case, the majority view, like the kind of like person on the street, if you ask them a number of questions about the founding fathers. Right. Their answers will usually kind of be something that hews kind of more to the conservative view of this kind of outsized, right? Uh, like I said, mythological figures of the founding fathers. And then on the left, um, there's this kind of obnoxious, like, like you can't even say Thomas Jefferson before they start talking about like uh, his, you know, mistress or something. Right, like that. right, right, right. Um, but one thing that really struck me reading on the occasion that I do about the founding fathers yeah, is yeah. first of all, how human they are and how yep. much infighting and petty and <laughs> stupid there was you totally. know, stuff going on totally, um, and how much self-interest and in everything was involved um, or just plain old like lack of morality in certain <laughs> issues, you know, right. uh, but at the same time, they're so much more incredible than because of that yeah. uh, than like the conservative view would suggest. Right. Um, and their accomplishments are so unprecedented. Right. Um, because there were these actual guys living in history and not kind right. of these um, religious figures, basically. Right, right, right. Uh, it's something that I want to read more about because I have a greater appreciation for kind of the abnormality and the incredibleness of America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that it exists at all. There's sort of a similar thing with democracy. Like when you read more about like the the ideas of democratic representation in Greece, it's like out of nowhere. Like it's so (laughs) insane that it even happened at all. Right. Um, right. 
Yeah, anyway, to go back to the history yeah. thing. <laughs> well, then you're definitely going to like those podcasts. So go check out Presidential and Constitutional because you will really enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, and you know what? I would also recommend a podcast called, I think it's called Why History Matters. And it's two oh, really? historians mm. and they're just kind of making connections between a current issue and, you know, sometimes a classic Greece or, you know, wow. they'll they'll load you up with where these ideas came from right. and other examples of what things, how these things used to play out in other cultures. And Crazy. That has been, I mean, sometimes it's a little foundational if you yeah. know a little bit about history, but like there's pretty great What's stuff. What's the name of it again? I, I'm pretty sure it's called Why History Matters. Okay. Awesome. Hey guys, pardon my brief interruption here, but do you need a new pair of headphones? If you do, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Urban Vinyl. They make premium wood headphones that look amazing. But here's the thing, they're made by audiophiles for audiophiles, so they sound as good as they look. In fact, reviewers have called their headphones the best headphones on the market, better even than Bose and Beats. And you know what, I agree. They're what I use when I record this podcast. Please consider purchasing a pair using the link in the show notes. If you click the link to their website and use the promo code J, my name, my first name, J-A-Y, super simple, you save 15% and Urban Vinyl will make a donation to the Reclamation Society. So if you need headphones or you're looking to upgrade the pair that you currently have, definitely take a look at what Urban Vinyl has to offer. Click the link in the show notes to visit their website and use my name, J-A-Y, to get the 15% discount. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Now, let's get back to the show. So let's circle back around and um, get back to, like, we've been talking a lot about, like, the philosophies, the theologies, even as you bring up the witch and what comes up in that story, um, and creators wrestling with these things storytellers wrestling with these things but what what do you hope people take away from your stories um we were talking about ancestor and kind of the mm-hmm. thematic intentions of that um and i've definitely in the promotion of ancestor and kind of coming well, having people react to it at shows or you know just getting in touch with us um there have been a pretty wide range of interpretations. Mm. So there is part of me that there is this spectrum where on one side, you know, the kind of like classic, like it's not mine anymore. It's mm. sort of there for people to get what they want from it. Yeah. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. Ah. Um, although I think there is definitely truth to that. Sure. But I think that there's also a level of intention in ancestor at least where it supports some ideas and it doesn't support other ideas. Right. Um, but within that framework, people have talked to me about things that it meant to them, um, in a way that was not at all what we were thinking about or maybe even contradicts things that we think. Um, Interesting. In some ways. Yeah. But when I look at Ancestor, I'm like, well, I mean, that's kind of there. Like, right. Um, but I think that that's the product of, like we were talking about, something being true. I think the truer something is, the less that it's going to be really obvious what mm. it's supposed to be about. Right. 
for the most part. Right, um, right, right, right. Uh, so generally, I the highest goal is to make the space for someone to have an epiphany. Yeah. Like I said, that's the highest goal. Yep. I've had that reaction to artwork before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds kind of... It's a weird thing to sort of articulate because it's yeah. like... <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, I'm doing this so people can have like a religious experience or something like that. <laughs> um, obviously that is not going to happen very often. Right. If at all, when right. you're making something. Right. But to me, that's kind of the highest goal. Yeah. That someone can have this kind of transcendent moment where they grasp at something that feels so true that... Uh, that it has an emotional impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, short of that, I mean, we want to communicate uh, kind of like the theme of Reclamation Society, some truth that exists in the world. Um, and a lot of times that, for me, has to do with some of the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. That there's, that there's not a simple kind of the way things are. Yep. Um, that hopefully, I mean, the antagonist in Ancestor is a pretty hateful dude. You're not really like, you don't necessarily sympathize with him, but I would hope that it's still an empathetic portrayal of that kind of character. Um, and I think, I think that's one of the key things that storytelling can do is to, show you an empathy for a kind of person that you wouldn't normally empathize with. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that you should condone what they do or think that they're a good person or anything like that, but that you understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Um, And that, to me, is something that approaches, uh, if you can do it well... um, you can theoretically love a character even if they're terrible. Like, you can have, you can identify with this almost like Christ like love of a person, yep. you know, where he's, you're fully known, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so I think that's something that storytelling can do, that, that can provide an insight to people. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that one of the very, like, politicized things in comics and movies and everything like that is diversity yeah um and obviously it's a kind of a talking point of kind of the left side of that argument but i think there's a real truth to diversity in the people that are creating the material being seen by wider audiences Mm -hmm. making it much easier for us to understand each other right um and to understand people's lives that we haven't had any experience with. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's one of the the main things that we try to do in our stories is that's cool. no matter how kind of spiteful or horrible a character might be or yeah. alien and different or, you know, fill in the blank right. that um, that the audience isn't ever necessarily going to be allowed to just like purely hate them or something right like that. right 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 yeah it, it occurs to me having read ancestor that you know your antagonist 
at face value, not given what we know about him from some of the um, specific character things that we see in him, but at, at, a, at a face value, there's not a lot to differentiate him from a character, a uh, real life character like Steve Jobs, <laughs> sure, who we revere. Right, and right, yet right. here you have kind of the flip side of that. Of well, could you, would you still revere a person if their intent was still the same to push the boundaries of technology, um, but the, if they were doing so for perhaps nefarious reasons as opposed to more altruistic ones, if those things exist in pushing the boundaries of technology, right? Right. Uh, you know these kind of things. Um, it's really interesting. I think I think you guys do a really good job of that in Ancestor. Um, so breaking from a lot of this heavy, heavy, heavy stuff, <laughs> um, which I think is super fascinating, and I love talking about it. So I appreciate you going with me um, through that process. But what are the what part of the uh, storytelling creative process do you really hate? Uh, well, this maybe is kind of a com a cop out but uh, th- it takes a really long time <laughs> it takes forever yeah. to draw comics yeah. um, so usually the part where I'm like the most miserable mm-hmm. is when we're like maybe a little more than halfway through ah. and there's just there's just still a long time to go before yeah, it's yeah. done um, yeah so it's not necessarily like a, a specific part of like inking or coloring or anything like that but that's always the part where I'm just like, man, I just want to get to the end. <laughs> <laughs> you know what my, my worst part of it is? Is the marketing of it. I, I cannot oh, stand. Yeah. I love the production of it. Even when it's annoying. Like we're right now in Death of a Bounty Hunter, the story that you did yeah. the illustration for. Um, we're, it's really frustrating. Because like you said, like you're just going back through and you're like, this could be better. But then as you, it could be better means you have to unravel so many things in order to make it better. That it's just slogging through a swamp, right? But the part I really truly hate is when it's like, now we have this thing. And no one will read this thing with the noise that's in the marketplace today. No one will read this thing. Even if this thing was the most amazing story. If you get word of mouth going, great. But if you can't even get the right, get it in the right people's hands who are going to share it, which is in and of itself difficult to do, right? man, that's rough. You know, it's a rough... Yeah, I understand that for sure. I it's that one is weird because it's not something that I'm very good at. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, a lot of it relies on a lot of the success of that kind of thing is founded on like social skills that I don't necessarily like have. <laughs> um, but for some reason, it I'm okay with it because because it I because comics take so long to make. Yeah. You can only really afford to make something that you really like. Yeah. Um, so when it comes time to try and get it to people to read, and this is sort of the first time that I've experienced it was with Ancestor, where I finished it and was like, I feel confident in this. Oh, that's cool. Um, whereas everything before, I was like, all right. I mean, there's things that I like about it, but I'm not necessarily like dying for people to read it or anything. Right, right. Um, but with Ancestor, it was more fun because I could mm. feel like I could just show it to people. Um and so then it was more just a matter of trying it, to find the best ways to get it to the most people. Yeah. And that can be a little bit more. I can wrap my head around that a little bit more. Got it. Um, yeah, but I totally yeah. get you on that. <laughs> What's your favorite part of the process? 
Um, there's sort of two different stages. When you're finishing the book up, yeah. it's when you're when you're finishing it as you're making it, like yeah. as you're writing those final moments or drawing those final moments. That's really fun because you've been setting up all this stuff mm. and you've been thinking about these end moments because mm-hmm. you know you want you want it to end really well. Yeah. So you have all these ideas about how it's going to go. You spent the most time thinking about that stuff. Right. Because it's been through the entire process. So when you actually get to do that, that can be really satisfying. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is in the beginning parts of the process where some story thing falls into place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sensation of having two or three things that you like uh-huh. um, and then the, just the thing clicking in yeah. that connects those or that makes the character make sense all of a sudden. Yep. That is a drug-like kind of <laughs> <laughs> sensation where yeah. it, it is really satisfying. That's like the writer's epiphany as opposed to the reader's epiphany, right? right. Like, or, the, or the viewer's epiphany. Um, very cool. So people have listened to you. Uh, we're about going on about 90 minutes. And now they're like, yeah, I got to know more about Malachi. Where do they go? How do they connect with you? Uh, I benefit from my name being Malachi. So <laughs> Malachi Ward on Instagram and Twitter and cool. Tumblr and everything like that is where you can find my stuff. Instagram is usually where I post the most. Like if you're just looking for images. I don't know if I'm following you on Instagram. I'm going to have to check on this really quick. <laughs> um, so, but, but Instagram is where you predominantly post stuff? Yeah. Got it. Cool. Thank you so much for dropping by. Yeah, thanks Amazing for conversation. Me. Really, really, really fun. Um, please go out, everyone, and buy Ancestor. Um, I have read it. It is incredibly good. You should go out and, and buy it. Where can they buy it? Can they buy it on Amazon? Yeah, they can get it on Amazon. If they uh, live next to a bookstore or a comic book store, there you go. They'll support they'll, your local comic book store. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty much anywhere you can get books, you can get Ancestor. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Malachi, for joining me. Everybody, go out and buy Ancestor and follow Malachi. Talk to you guys later. That is it for today's podcast. Now it's time for you to share your thoughts on today's topic. Write us an email at hi at reclamationsociety.org or head over to one of our social media accounts and get in touch with us there. Links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have an extra minute, write us a review or share this episode with one of your geek friends. All right, fellow geeks. As always, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. We'll catch you on the next podcast.